Accessing archive. Authorizing. Access granted. Accessing file. Jane Calm, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm really good. I'm very excited to chat with you today. Awesome. You were saying a minute ago that the time that we're in, you've been waiting for it for a long time. Um, you know, what do you mean when you say that? What's going on right now? Um, well, the intensity of the COVID conversation is definitely bringing up really deep hidden parts of our psyche and our society and the way that it operates and i've been looking into these deeper more hard to look at hidden aspects of our psyche and collective consciousness for about 20 years and so it was not a very easy conversation to have well it's not an easy conversation to talk about our darker parts but it was just like people thought what are you even talking about and now mm -hmm. it's becoming more mainstream to explore these darker parts and so i'm i'm happy that that's becoming more normalized to talk about the darker hidden aspects of corporations yeah and governments and just each other and the way that we ignore um, out of fear looking mm -hmm. at the way our world operates yeah right. absolutely yeah everything seems to be coming to light you know it was like how long could it all stay hidden you know because i know what you're talking about a lot of things coming out you know things about you know the jeffrey epstein stuff mm -hmm. the like the google and facebook and amazon hearings yesterday where you know the government's like inquiring as to like their privacy practices and how much money they make and you know maybe what i think part of the conversation is you know how much we could change the world if just like the one percent gave their money to for example i uh, i saw like a graphic online that shows um, how much it would cost to end world hunger to end homelessness it was actually affordable to a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that as well. And that's something that is coming to light a lot is what, and I'm really curious about these actual, the family systems that this 1% exists in. What are their families like and what is it like to grow up in that kind of environment and how does it stay that way? How has it stayed this way, this classist, separation for so long what is it like to grow up in those families and mm -hmm. i've been exploring that for a long time um the right. abuse and the i call it specialness programming where you're programmed from a really young age to believe that you're special and different mm -hmm. than the other people and what that does to a child to grow up in that world even if you wanted to consider yourself like i don't necessarily want to be special because being special in this family system is very painful. You don't get to choose that. It's it's practically a life or death situation, I think, a lot of times for um, the 1% family systems. It's very secretive, and mm -hmm. that also is very painful to an emotional system for a human being. So mm -hmm. those are some parts of the 
darkness that I think are coming to light is what happens when family systems are kept in this uh, cage of the money and and mm-hmm. class classist behavior, what happens yeah. to the psyche of even the 1% and how they're in a lot of pain too and why they isolate themselves. It's, it's all very interesting right. to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, in different terms, researched this. A lot of my research comes from listening to books about entrepreneurship and the struggles that people who, uh, you know, our entrepreneurs go through. Mm-hmm. And those types of things, you know, seem to correlate even with, you know, people who are very successful in an independent way. Maybe they weren't even born into this rich family, you know. Sometimes it becomes about protecting your wealth, protecting the things you fear to lose mm-hmm. once you kind of get to a, a certain, you know, place in your life where, you have all this stuff, you, maybe you have all this money, you have all this property, but then you're in a, like a more vulnerable place because now you have to l- protect all of that. And you, that's why I think materialism is kind of, uh, you know, of course, in, in spiritual circles, it's known that it causes a lot of suffering. You know, Absolutely. To, yeah. To put all of your happiness into these like items, uh, you know, really they have a very short acting effect. If you get a new car or a new, house or new whatever like you're going to be happy riding this high for like two weeks but then if you know you're going to be right back where you were is it's not going to change who you are at your core of being you know that's internal work Mm -hmm. you know a lot about internal work because um i guess we, we would call you a therapist isn't that right yeah um yeah so with the internal work you know like how how would you recommend people do find happiness, but also like what you've learned through it about, you know, the psyche and and how people can maybe hone their psyche and, uh, you know, gear towards happiness, productivity, good vibrations? Yeah. Well, um, as far as happiness, that interesting, elusive search, um, I think that happiness comes from being able to be in your body, in your own personal body, space, emotions, and be capable. Be capable of caring for yourself, of asking for what you need, of connecting with your emotions, and really knowing the self from the matrix. Know thyself. That's a -hmm. real thing. You're inside your body. If you aren't able to connect and communicate and understand where your pain and neuroses Um, joys, passions, where it all comes from and how to care for it, happiness is going to feel very shallow and elusive. And also when, I mean, life isn't always happy. That's ridiculous to even think that that's going to be the way it is. But being able to care for yourself and, and feel connected within the struggles of life, that to me is actually happiness. Or more importantly, fulfilling purpose, the purpose that you chose by being born into your particular ancestry, lineage, body, placement, to be able to purposefully connect and move through life connected to yourself. And therefore, if you're connected with yourself, you're also able to reach out and connect with other people and to go through the fluctuations that every single human relationship contains connected. So that to me is happiness and what I work towards in my therapy. 
Amazing. Yeah. Where did your interest in all of this start? You know, what age were you when, <laughs> you know, you started to delve into the psyche and, you know, I want to learn about the mind and I want to help people and this type of thing, your whole journey. Um, well, I've always been intensely interested in, um, well, when I was a kid, it was God because mm -hmm. that's all the wording that I had in the, you know, early or late seventies, eighties as a little girl, there was no spiritual conversation where I grew up in redneck, Alberta, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Canada, redneck, Alberta, Canada. Um, but I always had a, I was born with it. I can't remember not being driven towards understanding existence and God mm -hmm. was the only word that I could use. I've also always been very interested in the adults really as a mm -hmm. child, I was very suspicious that something was very wrong here. I, I cannot remember a time when I didn't feel like something's wrong. Because so I could mm -hmm. tell that adults, you know, as much as I cared for my parents, that they were doing things wrong. I remember my mom explaining to me that there was no way to get rid of plastic in the grocery store. I was looking mm -hmm. at the thousands of containers of plastic and when she said, yeah, we don't get rid of them. They just go to the garbage dump. And I just had an anxiety attack. I was like, this is crazy. This can't be real. You can't be the adult that's in charge of making things work here. You brought me here. How could you not know all these adults? How could you not know that this is impossibly horrible? That if we create this plastic, we don't have a way to get rid of it. We don't have a way to create a cycle that it is supported on the earth. And there were many, many moments like that when I was growing up where I felt very suspicious of adults. And so that grew into really wanting to know what was going on and asking a lot of questions. Um, and then when I was 19, I went to university, but I dropped out rather quickly because I, I got a strong sense of the classist system of paying tons of money to people who also pay tons of money to learn a very specific genre rhetoric, I guess is what mm -hmm. I would call it. And the main thing that hit me was how my textbooks that were written because I was um, in psychology and education, they were written in ways that the average people who apparently were trying to help and connect with that they would never speak, that no one speaks like this in the way the textbooks are written, the way I'm expected to write papers. Nobody talks like that. So why would I talk like that? And that very fun, right. why would I write like that? So that very fundamental thing that people just go, oh, that's just how you write in university. To me, that is a separatist, um, I just couldn't handle it. It, it made no yeah. sense to me. And so I dropped out and I went to Mexico and I ended up finding through a really good friend of mine, a group of Huichol people, and they are the peyote people. Mm. Their sacrament, um, their sacred uh, plant medicine is the peyote cactus. And yeah, I beautiful. ended up learning from them for about four years um, over the winters and eating a lot of peyote instead of going to university. <laughs> <laughs> That's a better university, I'd say. Uh, yeah. Because it shows you what's really there, not, you know, uh, I don't know. I've always had a similar suspicion about the schooling system. I don't know that I shared the same level of suspicion you had about adults. I can remember as a kid 
feeling like I would pick up on things adults did that I didn't understand why because of maybe, you know, the, the, the inner, the internal dialogue changes as you become an adult. Um, Mm -hmm. but with the school system, I always did feel like, why am I here? (laughs) Like, I'm never going to use this information, you know, like a couple things here and there I like, you know, I like that the fact that there's a community happening and I can make friends here And but like the whole time I was at school, I was just engaged with my community of friends and what we had going on outside of school, talking about video games, talking about music, talking about films. Like it was like my whole schooling experience. I wasn't really a great student. You know, I was in easy classes. I wasn't in advanced classes. I I really just coasted through the school thing. Um, And then when I got to college, I felt the same thing. I was just like, why do I need to learn all this stuff? It just doesn't feel like my path. And at a point, I even started saying, hey, I'm going to change my major. I want to go into music. I clearly have a passion for music. It's in my heart. It's in my blood. I feel it. I just love music. Start looking into it. There's all these qualifications to even apply to be a music major. Like you have to be able to read sheet music. You have to be able to perform like an instrumental solo for six minutes or something and like all this stuff that I couldn't quite do but I still had a massive passion for wanting to go into the music industry Mm -hmm. now I'm blocked you know it's like okay it was like I could you know go take all these prerequisite classes learn how to read sheet music which in my mind had no relevance to me because none of the musicians that I ever looked up to were sheet music musicians you know they were you know, people probably like what Simon does. He just lets it come to him. He just flows through, you know, and, and so that people know I'm talking about Simon. Simon Hayduk is your partner. Um, so that's why I say that. But yeah, it's like, you know, sheet music's cool and all, but in order for me to even like dip my toe into learning about the music industry, I have to have this pre-resequate. It just didn't feel right. So mm-hmm. I did leave college as well and forge my own path with the help of the mentors, the partners that I've created in the space. Um, I mean, really mentorship is the biggest, best thing to ever happen to me. And I, and I always recommend for people in any industry that you're trying to get into, find mentors, Mm -hmm. learn, you know, make sure you even like the work, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I did that in the film industry. It correlated to the music industry because they intertwine quite a bit. You know, if you go to film releases, there's still DJs, you know, you go to after parties, there's still music happening. There's still bands playing. It's like you start intermingling. Like, I think all of the media industry is kind of intermingled, you know, whether it be art, film, music, like, yes, they have their own niche events, but everyone loves each other's community uh communities respectively and i think there's a lot of like cross crossover between the audiences that appreciate um media in all its forms and especially psychedelic media which was my uh kind of venture into that so um plant medicines to get back to you know you working with peyote um also seem to be um widely known to be for example you know, people say 10 years of therapy in four hours <laughs> or, or for example, you know, my whole college doctorate degree in four hours, you know, in psychology, because it shows you more inner workings of the mind in ways that you can actually touch and have experience like tactile 
like experiences of so that it gives you insight into how other people's minds might work too and how we all are very similar in nature um that's the kind of like namaste understanding that at the back of a you know uh, at the at the root of it all we are all just pure consciousness you are me i am you we're the same thing we really want the same thing we want love we want happiness we want to feel good that is unless you know you've been led astray and like what you think makes you happy is like power and money and all this stuff but honestly it's causing more suffering and more disconnection from your fellow man and, mm-hmm. and fellow woman so that's interesting so if you want to like um would you be down to uh, talk about your time with the the Wichol people and the peyote and maybe what you've learned from using that well i feel really grateful to have had a lot of time with peyote when my brain was just coming into adulthood so i was 20 till about 24 that i was um with the Wichol people in in the winter time and I went on their tours. Well, they, it's the peyote hunt where they go to all the different sacred sites, which back in the back in the back in the day, they used to walk and mm-hmm. fast and only eat peyote. But now wow. because of colonialism, I guess, and all the separation and fences and owned property, they drive. Um, but it takes about two weeks and there's a ceremony to open it and a ceremony to close it. And the whole community is involved and so everybody in the community is eating peyote together. So stopping everything they're doing, all of their, you know, the chores of everyday life to stop and as a community together, eat peyote, sit around the fire and stay up. And then there's a, you know, there's a, it's not a rule, but it's an idea that you can try to stay up as long as you can. So I mm-hmm. would stay up for three three days and two nights. Wow. I've never done that. Yeah. And never stayed up for more than maybe like, like I would say 30, 32 hours or something. (laughs) Yeah. And so you just keep eating the peyote to keep being awake and keep learning. And it, it sort of cracks the psyche into being much more open, uh, much more vulnerable and humble and listening because, well, many reasons, but what was really wild to me was the healing potential of whole communities, um, it just mm-hmm. being a part of the community to stop and listen, mm-hmm. to stop and eat the therapist. I call plant medicine is like swallowing a therapist. That's a quote I like to say to people. I love it. That yeah. So good. Um, and the the amazing work that can be done by a peyote is really amazing because it's it's quite awake. Like it wakes you up. It yes. gives you a lot of energy. Um, energy and, you know, capability like, oh, look at me, I'm running without, uh, running really fast down a mountain without judging myself or stopping myself. So, Love it. It, you know, it's really gives you a lot of feeling that you're capable. Um, and, oh, it, it was just amazing to feel that, to stop mm-hmm. and what our society could be like if it was a given that we needed help. We can't just keep running around with, with our heads cut off like chickens yes. and expect yeah. Um, to feel connected to one another and ourselves. Um, so that's right. one thing that really, really affected me, seeing how the community does that and to be able to cry together, just random people crying, because mm-hmm. of course you're going to cry. 
You know, it's right. not a thing. Someone might come over and, and be with you, but nobody's like, oh my goodness, that person's crying. It's expected. And everybody's like, right. oh yeah, of course. There was uh, mm-hmm. fights. I saw a fight between a husband and a wife where a husband came and he, I think, he kicked his wife across the chest, like right in front of everybody. And just to give you a visual, to get to this community, we had to take a very long bus ride, dropped us off at a river. We sat and waited, took a very long boat ride. And then a donkey came and picked us up to take Whoa, us to where so we were. <laughs> so okay. this is very far from any technology or anything like that. And it was in mm-hmm. the uh, early 2000s. So there was no internet or anything like that. And um, so that's to give you a scene of where we're eating the peyote for all of these days. And this this man, you know, so the third day, everybody's, all the feelings are coming up and he comes and he kicks his wife across the chest and she falls to the ground. And his wife grabbed a log out of the fire and swung it at his head. Whoa. And then a bunch of men from the community jumped on the husband and tied him up. Mm-hmm. They tied him up and they left him there. And then yeah. everybody just kept moving around. Like, <laughs> okay, there, now he's tied up. And yeah. I was so shocked. I was like, what Whoa. is going on? This is amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. And he, yeah. I sat and watched him. I sat and watched him with actually his little daughter was sitting in my lap and she was crying. Mm-hmm. And people were talking to us. And But he was there for probably like four hours. Mm-hmm. And I sat and watched him. And what happened was he went through so many emotions. He went through yeah. attack and like yelling and screaming. He went through crying and begging. Um, but it wasn't until he finally surrendered. And you, I saw it in his body. His whole body melted into the earth. Wow. And he gave up. He gave up yeah. all of the ego battles, all of the different ways the ego has of trying to justify behavior. And he just gave up. And that's when the shaman and his wife came and untied him. And they mm-hmm. took him for a walk more into the desert away from the um, village community space. And I followed because in my therapeutic mind was already wanting to learn. And so I followed and I watched them and I couldn't understand what they were saying. They were speaking uh, their language, Raradika. Um, mm-hmm. But I just watched and I watched how they dealt with him. And I watched how because he had gone through all the emotions in a restrained, he was mm-hmm. restrained. But nobody was caretaking him. They were just letting him go through it. When he was finally able to talk to them, it was obvious that he was much more grounded and lucid. And then the wife came out and they talked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what they said, but I saw the result of the way that worked out. And I was like, wow. "Wow." They call to action immediately. Immediately, this guy is out of control. Tie him up. Mm -hmm. Don't give him any attention. Let him go through his shit. And then... He is dealt with when his nervous system has calmed down and he's accepted the space he's right. in. Wow. Those were so, yeah, I love that story. I love how yeah. the possibilities for the way that we take care of each other when we're in trauma and trauma that can be aggressive, how we deal with each other is like not caring for people in that space, like re-traumatizing them with punishment and a uh, long standing punishment. There's just so many possibilities in that. So that's a fun. It sounds like part. they work through it really fast, you know? Like it sounds more intense for those four hours, especially for the, the guy being tied up. Um, but hey, you know, th- they might have just solved years worth of 
trauma in four hours by going through this intense, really hard, really deep, really kind of profound ceremony together where, you know, emotions flew mm-hmm. and things got off each other's chest and, and they kind of saw, okay, you know, like I, that's the brink of no return, hopefully, and heal from this. You know, this was a big deal. Heal from this, you yeah. know, and, and I think the medicine puts you in a place to be able to receive that as well as the restrainment and, you know, everything else you mentioned about how they went about dealing with it. And that is definitely different than how, you know, today in modern America, people deal with stuff, you know, they shove it down and shove it down and shove it down and then have explosions. And it's like dr- drama and tweets and all that, you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> yes, and blame and shaming, yeah. shaming tactics that go beyond just like, obviously, he was shamed being tied mm-hmm. up. But it was mm-hmm. more as a device to help him move through the stages of his psyche to get to the right. surrender. It wasn't as an actual punishment. It was like, you're not safe right now. You're restrained. It was very simple, mm-hmm. cut and dry. Um, right. But I do want to say something about plant medicine because yeah. I, I've experienced, because um, I have also been a part of different ayahuasca um, ceremonies. I've done ibogaine. Um, you know, mushrooms are an amazing therapist mm-hmm. ally as well. Um, but I do notice that in our culture, there is a tendency to uh, idealize or think of plant medicine as a solution mm-hmm. um, to put a lot of effort into ceremony and taking in plant medicine and not uh, integrating into uh into everyday life something that our shaman taught us that i have never forgotten it's burned into my brain which is a part of why i do um, very sober therapy work Mm -hmm. is because there was one time we were in the desert we were on the peyote hunts and we'd collected a whole bunch and we were celebrating being together everybody was very very um connected had eaten a lot of peyote and we're just all because i was with eight other white people i guess they had we had been chosen to like they just did it because we asked and it was an amazing celebration actually my shaman brought us with him because it was his beautiful intention to learn and integrate and understand the more western culture that he was that was becoming very influential in mexico Mm -hmm. so I really, really honor his very sincere. He was not trying to get tons of money from us. We were just poor kids. Like I mm-hmm. spent every single cent I had to be there and get there. And I had $0 when I got home, that kind of thing. And, <laughs> and we provided right. for the community a lot. It was a, a wonderful exchange, but we were by no means rich people. And mm-hmm. he took us in and he didn't have to. He could have only taken very wealthy gringos, but he, it was, it was a really heart, heart choice on all sides. Um, mm-hmm. So in any case, we're in the desert tripping balls, basically. <laughs> and very, very excited about what we're experiencing. And he starts laughing at us and a very mocking laugh. And he starts saying, nada, nada, like nothing, nothing. Nothing okay. you're experiencing is real. It doesn't matter. And we're like, wow. what? Why would you say that? Like, that's a horrible thing to say. How could you, the shaman, say this to us? It's like nothing. They're all just you're just high. That's just your visions. It means nothing unless you can bring it to earth was what wow. he said. And that really struck me. And I've really mm-hmm. seen that in the, our, the psychedelic communities where there's a lot of bonding and a lot of revelation and crying. And 
in the ceremonies, but I've noticed those same people can often be very, uh, like, still um, playing out their trauma in their everyday lives and not really sure. bringing that. It doesn't work. have a lasting effect. Yeah. So the work to me is actually more about what you're doing in your everyday life, how you're integrating yeah. this conversation into your sobriety, how you're making all of the other days where you're not on plant medicine, how 100%. you're making those connected to the work that you experienced that the peyote brought up or the plant medicine brought up for you because plant medicine itself does not heal people. It cannot mm -hmm. show you what you already aren't asking to be shown, what you're not already willing to look at. It can't show yes. you what you're not willing to look at because it's just a mirror. Actually, the Weechels call themselves mirror of the gods. Mm -hmm. And so the peyote itself is just a mirror of what's going on inside. So if you, say, are a person who has intense sexual trauma and maybe you're showing that trauma is showing up as predatory behavior, mm -hmm. you're using your sexuality to manipulate um, and you're not willing to look at it, it hasn't come into your sober consciousness as something that needs to change, peyote or plant medicine is not going to change that for you. It's actually mm -hmm. going to potentially accelerate it because when you're experiencing visions and you're experiencing these, you know, otherworldly perception type mm -hmm. experiences, that can, if you have a power tripping ego, that can accentuate it. And so it's a very dangerous, slippery slope I feel like it's very important that plant medicine is not going to solve anything. Only mm -hmm. your everyday, mundane, often boring as fuck stuff, mm -hmm. like efforts, is going to change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Yeah. So it's kind of like, yes, like you can see the possibilities of what you could be and revel in it in the psychedelic state mm -hmm. but unless you actually do the work the following day and the following week and the following month mm -hmm. to maintain you know your remembrance of what you've learned then you know then yeah it's it's kind of it's a very temporary state of being um and the work is to make that temporary state of being of understanding and oneness and you know, compassion and empathy and, you know, namaste to to main to, to be with you as frequently as possible. And, and I'm not saying you're going to live and be Jesus and be perfect, you know, and, and have no anger no. ever again. But at least stay in touch with, hey, you know, I'm not going to react right now. I'm going to respond. I'm going to actually be conscious of the way I respond to uh, this thing happening versus this involuntary anger reaction, you know, like uh, kind of like the, the feelings that are very easy to have. You know, we, we have to work on having the, the ability to shift our emotions to things that are less easy, mm -hmm. but honestly more flowy, more better. It takes effort to flow with the circumstance, to flow with the conversation instead of, to just, you know, react and um, kind of be a passenger to your emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? that's a lot of the work that I do, the therapy work that I do, because as we become, at, when we become adults, it's very clear that there are lots of parts inside of us 
we mm-hmm. develop all these different parts of our personality. There's the part that sabotages things. There's the part that encourages us. There's the part that escapes. There's the part that is creative. There's the part that is depressed. All mm-hmm. these different parts. And sometimes one of these parts will become louder and sort of take over. And so the work that I do is taking time, say the 90 minutes that my sessions are, to slow down and pay attention to your inner world. Often my sessions are done with your eyes closed so that you can really focus on these different conversations because these parts are actually talking to each other inside of us. But Mm -hmm. how often do we slow down as, you know, our own witness, our own adult self witness and really listen and pay attention to all these parts because they're often in conflict with one another. And so that causes conflict within me if I'm Mm -hmm. not able. And so the work I do is called self-parenting. So it's you becoming your own parent Mm. of your inner world, of all of these different feelings so that they can um, coexist um, peacefully. And by peacefully, I don't mean you're always going to feel uh, like some kind of flatline Um, sameness of peace all the time. That would be boring. You are a dynamic human being. You have many emotional states and you're meant to be able to express them and enjoy them. Even anger and upset, if it is properly parented, is actually an incredible vehicle for creativity, for Mm -hmm. expressing your truth. Anger is very important. and Mm -hmm. But if it's not given the proper container to express, it can be very abusive. Yeah. Um, to ourselves, um, first and foremost, and then also to other people. So that's the work that I'm doing is the integration of all these different inner parts and being able to parent them, to show mm-hmm. up and listen, listen to all the different conversations, listen to what they their needs are and be able to meet their needs actually. Because when we were small children, um, from the time we were zero to seven years old, our brain was actually in theta wave. And theta wave is hypnosis. So Mm. small children are in a state, a brain wave pattern that is like hypnosis. It's the same brain wave pattern that adults are in when they're on a hypnosis show and they end up barking like a dog or doing things they would never do. That Mm. suggestibility is where children are until they're about seven years old. And so everything that happens around you is absorbed as just the truth. If my dad ignores me, that must mean that there's something wrong with me and I'm not worthy of attention. And so that Mm -hmm. belief system gets ingrained in us. And that's how these different parts show up because we develop protection mechanisms. So if my dad ignores me, I'm not worthy of attention. So I'm never going to ask for attention again in that way because that will just Mm -hmm. get me hurt. And so we develop this protection and this other voice that says, anytime you call for attention, that that innate human desire to be seen and adored for who you are, anytime you go to desire that, I'm going to come along and stop you. And so those mm-hmm. two different parts, right away, there's two different parts that develop in that small child, the part that wants to express, and then the part that stops, stops it. And so how many different parts are developed inside of us by the time we're adults? It's it's quite a few. And it's an amazing discovery, actually, 
to realize how complex every single person is, how beautifully intricate every person is. I often say to my clients before we go in, that's what I call it when they close down their eyes and pay attention to their inner world. Mm-hmm. I say like, oh, welcome to the movie of you. Like you are a blockbuster, amazing movie and you get to mm-hmm. be present. You get to affect it because a lot of the work is bringing in different support systems that weren't there when you were small. It could be an- your ancestors. It could be angels, whatever your, it could be Jesus if that's what you're called to. It could be a mm-hmm. nature spirit. It could be somebody that was in your childhood that was really supportive and then comes back in our sessions to reaffirm how um, divine you are. So everybody's inner world is actually an epic movie and it's just about taking the space to really pay attention. And so it's just epic work. I love it so much. (laughs) That is beautiful. And it's cool to be able to do what you enjoy, you know, for work. Yes, so you clearly do enjoy this. Oh, beyond enjoyment. It's so yeah. powerful and so deep for me. I'm just constantly feel that service towards it. And it, it is almost mm-hmm. effortless because I feel so uh, just uh, capable and listening and ex- right. um, yeah, connected. <laughs> Amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple of things came up there in me. Have you happened to have heard about the idea that there are there's something about Jungian psychology that talks about these kind of different characters that exist archetypes. within us. Yeah, archetypes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like within each of us, there is a king. Within each of us, there is a servant. You know, within each of us, there is, you know, like these kind of archetypal personality traits and then you can look at it like astrology and and all that stuff too you know like oh you have a strong sun sign or you know whatever it is okay um but it's just interesting because you were talking about all these different um ways that we pick up of being by the time we grow up to be adults and i almost felt like you know it aligned with what i had heard and you know not really well researched yet so you know take this with a grain of salt guys um but that there are these kind of different slivers of personas that we put on you know depending on the circumstance it's like in a business meeting you might be this really confident really outgoing person and then in front of a girl that you've never met you're really shy and like really you know what i mean it's like there's different ways that we you know come you know uh have uh these different i guess masks maybe that we put on but a lot of absolutely and I don't mean to say that they're not genuine. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say, you know, that that you're not actually genuinely nervous in front of the girl and not actually genuinely thrilled to be in front of people at a business meeting. It, but it's just interesting how there are these parts of us that come out at different times. Yes, absolutely. What and do you know about that or think about that? Well, yeah. I think that's 100% my experience and my experience with, as a therapist is that there are many, many different parts inside of us. And yeah, they archetypes are a way to map them out. And that's mm-hmm. like saying, oh, there's a king inside all of us, or there's a queen right. inside all of us, or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that can be true. And every single person's king or queen part of them has a different story to it. Mm-hmm. And it shows up differently. Um, and that's so interesting. I don't actually... I let the person's inner world tell us what the archetypes are. I don't put any on them. I let it show up as a dialogue. Like they'll often Mm -hmm. 
end up saying, oh, that's the swampy, muddy part. And so mm-hmm. from then on, when it comes up in the session, we'll refer to that part in the, as the swampy, muddy part. Because right. once you've visited these parts of yourself doing what I do, which is closing down the eyes and really paying attention, then when you're in your everyday conversational time, this is another part of the session when we're just talking about what we experienced, mm-hmm. then you can talk about these parts um, and, and normalize them. So that they're not hidden anymore. They're not hidden. This muddy, swampy part that's in this person is not affecting them in secret. It's not this Mm -hmm. shameful secret. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody here on this earth has different parts that are sabotaging and in pain. And mine is called the swampy, muddy part. And Mm -hmm. so we end up dialoguing about it. Oh, yeah, I I went to that job interview and swampy, muddy part was like wreaking havoc. But then I brought in that angel part of myself and we had a conversation in the washroom. And, you know, I let swampy, muddy part know that, you know, it could cry in the car afterwards or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm just making it I think that's more adaptive, you know, because I think each person does identify with certain symbolism, you know, in the world. Mm-hmm. And so maybe someone wants to be an angel, not a king. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like that aspect of them. It's not that they want to be that, but I just mean they identify with that imagery more, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, that's cool. I think that's very adaptive of of the way that you allow people to create the, their own uh, meaning, their own imagery from what's kind of bubbling up. And I do wonder, what is it bubbling up? I guess it's the subconscious, right? Yeah. And also the collective consciousness. It's all, it's the amazing, I sometimes try not to pin things down too much because to me, this, I I feel like in our world, we have this uncontrollable like neuroses to pin things down and call them that. And now they're that. And it's over. We discovered something and anyone who disagrees is stupid. As mm-hmm. though everything is an inconstant conversational evolution. It's always just mm-hmm. new information. So I try not to pin anything down. And I really like what you're saying about, yeah, each person's inner psyche is their own epic movie. And it might yeah. have similarities to others, but it's so unique. Every single one of us is absolutely mind-blowingly unique. Like th- mm-hmm. there is, I often actually think that a part of what happened to us as a, as a collective is we were disconnected from how amazing we actually are. And so as our consciousness comes into adulthood, we often, because we're not able to connect with the actual power and unique storyline of our pain and all the energy and connection that can come from being able to express how, who you are to each other, that mm-hmm. we look to drugs and alcohol and uh, escapism because we're not given like rites of passage to discover how incredible we are. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that our, our emotions, if we were able to harness and ride our emotions we would be very high. Like we would be, you know, we take these plant medicines and psychedelics to have these epic experiences, but we are actually epic experiences. And this is what happens to me a lot of the time. I've had people, because my sessions are sober, I've had people say to me when they come out of the, you know, inner world exploration, that was more intense than my ayahuasca journey. And I, I don't, 
take that as a compliment to myself. I take that as the truth about who we are, that when we pay attention to who we are and we learn to ride our emotional experience and not try to shut down anger or shut mm-hmm. down pain and we get into it and we let it connect us to another person. So that's mm-hmm. what the therapy is, is getting used to letting that inner world be seen by another person and and be able to mm-hmm. love it. And wow. that we wouldn't need as much escapism. They We wouldn't need as many TV shows as many mm-hmm. movies because we would be those epic movies because we are. <laughs> exactly. I was saying that in my uh, in a podcast with my friend Mike recently about how this podcast, what we're doing right now, you know, it, it's it's awesome because I enjoy it. You know, we're going to get, you know, information out to people that hopefully they benefit from, they learn something from, but also in the editing process it's like I'm sitting back watching a movie for like three hours. You know what I mean? And yeah. That's so much more productive and fun and like interactive than just being a passenger to like a Netflix show that I've already seen a bunch of times, you know, like Breaking Bad, for example. Like that's one that uh, is just such a great um, one of my favorite series of all time. Just Amazing. The way, yeah, the way it was shot. Like it's like a default. Like I, I've seen it time and time again i'll just if i want something on i'll just throw breaking bad on but mm-hmm. um i guess what i'm saying is like editing these podcasts you know i'm probably 15 episodes in now if it's three hours each that starts adding up to a lot of like quote unquote entertainment hours that i've traded towards something that i'm still being entertained by but now it's productive and it's fun and it's part of my path you know and it's connecting you're connecting yes. with another human being yeah. So you're not a bystander to the emotional ride. You're in the emotional ride. 100%. Yeah. I love it. I think we also gave up a lot of our ability to uh, move into uh, the unknown mm-hmm. and the the intense like chemical rush and high that can come from that to move into the unknown mm-hmm. and to try new things to connect with yourself and other people. We gave up a lot of that. And I think that's a partly why a lot of people are very, uh, per- feel very purposeless. Yeah. Go ahead. That is part of the, that is exactly part of, I think, the purpose of this podcast is to share with people, you know, how to find purpose, how to quiet your mind enough to, to really do that deep work of who are you? Why are you here? What do you love? What are you good at? Where are your strengths? Where are your weaknesses? It's okay to have weaknesses. Everyone has them. Just identify them. You know what I mean? So you know what they are and kind of go towards something that fulfills you because money, cars, houses, they're great. They're not going to fulfill you though. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, it's an inner thing. Like it comes from inside. So that is part of, you know, I think the reason that I am bringing these podcasts out, um, and releasing these episodes is because a lot of the people that I, I interview on here do something that fulfills them, you know, whether it be art or music or being a therapist, you know, mm-hmm. like it, they have a practice that fulfills them on a level that just having a, a big number in your bank account just never will, mm-hmm. you know? So it's true. Mm hmm. Um, while I have you, um, I wanted to say, have you researched at all or like, how do you feel about the whole MDMA psychotherapy model that is being developed right now? Um, 
Well, I feel, I guess, I have a lot of trepidation just around how quickly people are considering themselves therapists and Mm -hmm. haven't, in my humble judgment, (laughs) which maybe Mm -hmm. is not so humble, but I... I, it's coming from a place of really wanting to make sure that people are cared for and not victimized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a concern. There's a concern because of what I was talking about earlier that taking medicines can give you the illusion of having more power and more connection mm-hmm. and more abilities than your actual sober life can live up to. Sure. Um, so that's a concern that I have. Uh, at the same time, all of my... Uh, psychedelic journeys happened um, through the space holding of people without any degrees, all of Mm -hmm. them. So Mm -hmm. I'm hypocritical to say that that isn't important as well. And I don't, as I shared before, I don't just blindly give trust to institutions, especially huge money-making, you know, universities. And Mm -hmm. that that is going to going through that training is going to somehow make you capable of holding space because a lot of, uh, you know, training I've noticed you're learning how to do things to other people, but you're not having those same things done to yourself, mm-hmm. which is why I'd like to give a shout out to the counseling college that I went to, which is called ClearMind international and ClearMind, The founders noticed this in, uh, their colleagues that a lot of the people, their colleagues were, you know, therapizing their clients in ways that they knew that they weren't doing in their own life, that they had no connection to any type of self-work mm. that involves none of the letters after your name. What if every therapist, especially that, uh, and I'm referring to what I understand as a model being generated right now to really help people with PTSD and this type of stuff, MDMA therapy, what if every therapist that's partaking in MDMA therapy has to be you know, an MDMA patient, an MDMA therapist patient, yeah, you know, that, do that po- stuff before. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, honestly, these are concerns that I have and I, I'm sharing them so that people are aware of these things as a possibility, but I don't mm-hmm. think there's actually a across the board way that you're going to make it so that in people's journeys, they do all the right things to become this therapist because there's mm-hmm. loopholes to all that. Actually, you can do as much MDMA as you want. And if you're not willing to face your predatory victimhood or whatever, you're, it's not mm-hmm. out of the dark of you. These parts of ourselves are actually like mega powerful. These hidden aspects that we've shut down, they have a lot of power to them. And so the point is to bring them out in a sacred space with somebody who you can trust so that you get good practice at communicating with these parts, at mm-hmm. seeing them, and because they're affecting you unconsciously yeah. all the time. Right. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I do feel like the uh, uh, MDMA, I, I don't use MDMA therapeutically, um, mm-hmm. but there is another substance that I'm pretty interested in that um, I have been involved with in different mm-hmm. respects. And so it creates a, just a longer time period to be together and it connects you with your trauma um so with the trauma responses in the brain but like is this the ibogaine no no it's not a plant 
Okay. It's an unscheduled medicine. And if anybody wanted to talk to me about it personally, I would share it with them personally, the name. Got it. But okay. it connects you to your, it immediately lights up the trauma responses in your brain. Okay. So, oh my goodness, this is how I'm traumatized right away. And, but okay. it also, just like MDMA, connects you to your heart. So you're able to be empathic to your own trauma response. And just like MDMA, it also lowers the shame uh, barrier. So you're able to talk about the trauma that's come up with your heart open. So it's incredible uh, kind of fast track to dig up all of the stuff. And so then you can, with more information, because the sessions are six hours long, with more information, so much information can come out in six hours. It's just incredible. And then wow. you can move more into the um, more sober sessions, visiting your inner world with more of a, you know, the novel has been, uh, the first few chapters yeah. are really covered. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Let's leave them with that mystery and that suspense, you know. Thank you so much for your time today, Jane. Give us all the shout outs. Where do we find you? Yeah, you can contact me. My website is janecom.com. Very easy. J-A-N-E. C-A-L-M dot com. Um, yeah, and feel free to uh, Jane Calm Counseling on Instagram. Um, yeah, so my sessions are effortlessly done online as well because mm -hmm. when you close down your eyes and pay attention to your inner world, you don't, that's all the tools you need is your own yeah. body and following the feelings inside. So, so that is Jane Calm, everyone. JaneCalm.com. Go check it out. Follow her on Instagram. Uh, thank you again for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, Matt. That was wonderful.